0: Available at farmnewsnow.com or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Agriculture through a modern lens. This is The AgriPod with Alice McFarland.
1: On this episode, the livestock industry remains very concerned about the shortage of veterinarians. But what are the main issues that are preventing post-secondary students from getting into and then staying in the veterinary profession? Alberta veterinarian Sydney Crosby spoke to the recent Saskatchewan Beef Industry Symposium and shared some of her thoughts on how the sector can change to keep vets. Every year, Farm Credit Canada compiles a lot of data. One that usually generates a lot of conversation is the farm cash receipts. Chief Agricultural Economist J.P. Gervais will go through these statistics and share his thoughts on what's to come in 2023. After the break, Sydney Crosby.
0: Digging into the topics that matter to you. The AgriPod with Alice McFarlane.
1: Sydney Crosby is a veterinarian at FenVet at Airdrie, Alberta. She spoke at the recent Saskatchewan Beef Industry Symposium on the challenges facing the veterinarian and cattle industries. After her presentation, I had a chance to talk to Sydney about what some of her concerns are. Sydney, maybe I'll just
2: get you to start and tell me about your practice. I am Sydney Crosby. I am a, a well, I'm a practice owner um, at FENVET and I, and we're getting the bovine practice side uh, up and going. We're not in the field just quite yet, but we will be gearing up to get out in the field soon, just in time for calving season.
1: Um, We've been talking a lot about challenges in um, the cattle industry, in particular on the veterinarian side of things. Um, Just how serious is the food animal vet shortage now?
2: It is a a huge problem, not just in Canada, but in the U.S. as well. Um, It's not that we're not putting food animal students out there that want to practice this, but it's hard to attract them to the profession just with all the challenges and and being without the creature comforts in rural areas and the social implications that it has, uh, the areas of uh, discrimination and lack of acceptance. A lot of these students are not coming from agricultural backgrounds, so they're not quite accepted into the industry as nicely. And then the challenges that come along with being a veterinarian and the, and the compensation and salary and the debt that they have, and then being in a rural area um, with not a whole lot of support.
1: I want to touch on discrimination in the industry right now, um, and in, you mentioned about vets that don't come from a farming background like you yourself. Or can you give me some examples of some of the comments that were, have been made to you uh, in your time practicing?
2: In my time practicing, I wouldn't say so much people discriminated against me from not being from an agricultural background as much as I have for my gender. I gave some examples in that. um, And if you want those quotes to quote me. But um, usually it just came down to having the attention of the producer. And so when I said that was one of my least favorite questions, if I had the opportunity to prove that I knew what I was talking about and I could show that i had those skills to the producer and and really just set myself apart and that i was i was good at food animal medicine before that question was asked I had a lot more respect from them. But if that started off the conversation, that was one of the the first questions that was asked before I had the opportunity to do that. They then turned their attention to the male students over me. And I really had to assert myself. But the most rewarding things at the end of those calls usually resulted in the producer saying, you worked your ass off and you did a great job and you are welcome back at any time, which made that all the more rewarding in the end.
1: It's really heartbreaking to hear that vets who say, if I knew then what I know now, that maybe I wouldn't gotten into the industry. That, that's really a sad state because it's a huge investment in uh, time, education, and very expensive tuition. Yeah, very much so. And, and
2: so that really boils down to just it was hard But we all love it. We got into this profession because we love animals. We definitely didn't do it for the money. But when you're that financially constrained off the bat and you don't get compensated the same way that doctors do when you've invested the same amount that they did, it really is hard to come back from that. And some of these people are business owners too. So they're trying to run a business. They're trying to raise a family. They have this debt. And so it's disheartening when... You have these people who are supposed to be firing the next generation up are saying, I I wouldn't have done it again if you'd asked me if I would, which is very sad.
1: Uh, You had mentioned that vets owe twice of what they earn uh, with expensive tuitions. Can you give us a sense of uh, comparing it to other occupations uh, having to do with health? So, I can't
2: speak for all areas, and I am from the US as well, so I'm not entirely sure what all of the the salaries are amongst the professionals, but uh, I'm pretty certain that human doctors make somewhere around 200,000, quarter of a million annually ish.
1: How important is mentorship and we talked about you know the vets that are running businesses and and are practicing veterinarians and and have other commitments and they have their family and that type of thing Um, but the mentorship you think is is a, a component that would encourage and keep people in the industry. Absolutely,
2: And when, when kids are coming out of vet school, it, it's unfortunate that they don't feel confident when they come out of vet school. They want you to have the knowledge and, the, and not really be skilled, but know what the skills are and you, that you know where to find the information instead of having those skills solidified when you graduate and feeling very confident. Um, and that comes down to getting them out of the classroom and, and everything like that as well. So when they come out of vet school, they really want somebody who's going to take the time to teach them in their first year and it's sad because this is promised a lot or somebody most vets are like yeah yeah of course I'll mentor you that's great and you know I won't throw you to the wolves but uh, usually they do and they're not the best mentors and you don't have any autonomy and so I feel like the the new grads that are coming out almost feel like they've been snuffed as far as the mentorship that they were promised so they, they really need somebody that teaches them. So it's just a, it's a constant problem from before college, through college, through vet school, and then even out in practice. But at a certain point, you, you get to the point where you take the training wheels off, and you're good, and you're fine to go.
1: What would you like to see changes made in the vet schools themselves that you think that would, uh, would help prepare the next generation of veterinarians? getting more food animal practitioners
2: teaching and like I said in in my presentation I think that the Canadian vet schools have some good folks in there um, but that doesn't hold true at all the vet schools UGA had had great people as well but the clinicians that are out there in the trenches that have experienced it themselves that have left academia and and have been out in practice are, are some of the best Instructors that I had. But the problem is those people like being out in the trucks. They like doing clinical practice. They don't like being in an academia environment. So there has to be a way to, to compensate them for their hourly rate, have them teach maybe Tuesday, Thursday, one class during the fall semester instead of requiring that they be on-site all the time. Um, I think that'd be a great way of... Um, Getting more of that into the curriculum and then also getting kids out of the classroom more. Some some material is pretty redundant, and I feel like a lot of this could have been consolidated. And I feel like veterinarians would feel more confident coming out of school if they were boots on the ground on these operations, which is also a good thing that Canadian schools do, too. They do a really great job of getting their students out in the field more than the U.S.,
1: what ways can farmers and ranchers that are looking after their large animals um, that they could be doing more of perhaps to take a little bit of heat off veterinarians? Uh, I know that some of the things that you talked about is, you know, telemedicine or perhaps consulting or things like that. Are there more things that you think that ranchers could be doing? Uh,
2: really just establishing a relationship with a consulting veterinarian, like, like you just mentioned. Um Having that relationship with your vet, having them out, the the minimum requirement to have uh, a signature for scripts and to have that vet client patient relationship is just one visit a year on the operation to say, "I, I know what's going on. I'm familiar with this herd and their management practices, but maybe that involves having the vet out. Quarterly, um, Some people have the vets out on their place daily and really establishing protocols and, and herd management all the way from like biosecurity to treatment to um, all the preventative medicine so that we we have everything set up in place and everything's good to go. And so you don't rely on them to come and deal with the the issues or the problems. You kind of prevent them ahead of time because you have a really good relationship with your vet. And then when you call them, they know exactly what's going on or or how to to help you navigate through it.
1: We've talked a lot about the concerns that are out there right now and uh, the issues that veterinarians are facing and that how that is rolling down to the livestock producer as well. But I don't want to end on a negative note. Um, I know a lot of people that are interested in the veterinary profession are in the process of going through that right now, and they're very excited about about the occupation and, and what is it about it that you love and keeps you in it.
2: I, when I came through my upbringing, like I mentioned, I was from a military family and not a farming background. But when I got involved in agriculture, there was a vet science class that was offered for the first time my freshman year in high school. And that's how I got involved in in agriculture and how my world opened up to it. And so I always wanted to be a veterinarian, but my trajectory sort of changed in that I wanted to be a food animal veterinarian at that point. And so that solved my problem that I got to have a profession that encompasses both of my passions agriculture and animals and I love that I am able to make a difference with producers and that I'm able to make their operations more profitable and have a huge part in that in veterinary school there's a huge uh, range of personalities and what you might do but you have everybody from the animal activists to the food animal people and we get very little credit for what we do but i will say that the small animal people and people and research or shelter med they're they're like we save dogs and cats but they really throw us a bone in saying that it's pretty cool that you're able to keep the food supply safe and that's, that's a pretty awesome position to be in. So I'm very fired up about it. I love data. I love numbers. And you can't change something without measuring it. So I, I think it's kind of a different spin on what most people's impressions are, or what vet medicine are. And we're kind, of a, we're kind of a special group of folks. And I hope a lot of people see that over the next few years. And kids do stay fired up about it.
1: Sydney Crosby is an Alberta veterinarian. After the break, J.P. Gervais with Farm Credit Canada has the statistics on farm cash receipts for 2022.
2: Digging into
0: the topics that matter to you, the AgriPod with Alice McFarlane.
1: Chief Agricultural Economist at FCC is J.P. Gervais. Uh, J.P., um, I understand that the estimate is a jump of 14% from the previous year.
0: Well we just recently published our you know our first set of estimates when it comes to gross revenues at the farm level for twenty twenty two now twenty twenty two is over but there's always a lag in between when we actually learn what our revenues at the farm level, so the twenty twenty two estimates actually look very positive right and if you take a little bit more of a longer term perspective, go back two years perhaps you know since the start of the pandemic and early twenty twenty you're looking at roughly growth of around 40 percent in gross revenues all the way up to the end of 2022 and part of the exercise as well was looking at, you know, the growth and revenues at the farm level for 2023. And, you know, it's not as, as large, you know, as, as the increase that we had in 2022. I mean, commodity prices were pretty strong in 2022. We had a good rebound in production as well after a difficult 2021 from a crop standpoint. So, but 2023 looks good. I mean, we're able to sustain the high revenues that we've had. So, you know, for the last couple of years. Now, of course, the one thing is, This is all about gross revenues, right? And the flip side of this from a profit standpoint is, you know, what about farm expenses? And they're going to remain elevated, unfortunately, for most of 2023, I fear.
1: So what are your expectations for 2023, continued growth in farm cash receipts, but at a more moderate pace?
0: Yeah, it's a bit of a return to, I wouldn't say normal, because I mean, I'm not exactly sure what normality looks like right now. I mean, we're in a market where with the war in Ukraine, the uh, the demand for bio-diesel, renewable diesel, th- there's just tons of different things that are happening in the industry. And so we got farm operators and, and owners that need to navigate all of this. But Again, if you sit down and look at the national level, as you pointed out, or, or in a province like Saskatchewan, for example, where 2022 went up 8%, another 8% perhaps in 2023, I think it spells out that we are facing a really strong demand for the commodities that we grow. So that's the good news. I mean, the not so good news is that, you know, the expenses that go along, you know, producing all that food and so forth are going to remain elevated. So that, you know, raises the bar when it comes to challenges for farms to turn a profit and make sure that they manage their efficiency really, really well. Because uh, margins are going to be positive in 2023, but there's a lot of downside risk as well that we perhaps have to account for. And and I think it raises the bar, as I said, in terms of management skills.
1: And according to the report, uh, the growth in farm cash receipts will be led by grain and then livestock
0: yeah well, on the livestock side, I do think that we're pretty positive so far in early twenty twenty three the the supply numbers in the u s are not gonna grow i mean it's like actually in our case, you know we're facing a little bit of some of the same issues in the you know in the sense that the cattle industry has been a little bit difficult in twenty twenty two We started the year with a backlog of animals it took us a while to get rid of that, and so that ended up with you know prices that were not as strong as perhaps we had hoped but if you look at Overall, the, the strength of demand for red meat. I think I'm fairly positive that despite the high inflation, we've seen already at the retail level sort of beef prices come not come down, but inflation is certainly coming down as opposed to other products uh, at the grocery level. So all of that, I think, point to strong demand. And I think the wild card is really the demand in the world markets, right? So China looms large when it comes to the demand for meat globally. And, and uh, we just got news, you know, early this week that their production has rebounded more than everybody expected, really, in 2022. So, you know, the opportunities in 2023 might not be great from that standpoint on the export side, but I think I'm fairly positive that we can we can sustain the level of pricing that we have in the marketplace.
1: JP Gervais is the Chief Economist with FCC. Uh, JP, let's take a look at the outlook on interest rates. Now, I understand you're expecting one more interest rate hike from the Bank of Canada before rates start to stabilize?
0: Farm owners have made some pretty big decisions, you know, lately in terms of the investment on their farm and so forth, right? So they face a lot of different considerations when it comes to managing financial risk on their farm. And so question number one is always about interest rates. And we think that next week is the Bank of Canada decision. We think that we're going to get a small increase of 25 basis points but will be done afterwards so th- those are the assumptions that we work with that's what i communicated as well this week in in uh, the manitoba ag days and but i think that this is all being priced in already in the marketplace it's it's what matters is what is expected going forward we think that the bank's done and we think that's for, for the most part if you're looking at longer term interest rates right think of a five-year fixed rate for a five-year mortgage for example. I think we've seen pretty much the decline in those rates compared to what they were three months ago, even months ago. I think we've seen pretty much all the decline that we're going to see in 2023. So basically, my argument is what you have right now in financial markets and the marketplace is perhaps what you're going to have to be looking at, you know, six months from now or even 10 months from now. We're not going to get an interest rate cut from the Bank of Canada until very late in 2023 if we get one. So what you're seeing right now in the marketplace is pretty much what you're gonna to have to face, you know, later on. And there's always the risk that the bank decides that yeah, inflation still too strong, and then perhaps in March or later on that they still continue to raise interest rates, right? So I think if number one is interest rates, and then second was you know the outlook for commodity prices and farm expenses. I mean, farm expenses are on the mind of the, uh, farm operators and owners for for good reasons. That's been uh, inputs are elevated, and unfortunately we expect those inputs to stay elevated.
1: J.P. Gervais is the Chief Agricultural Economist with Farm Credit Canada. Here are the top stories from the week of January 23, 2023. Agriculture Canada released its first crop projections for 2023-24, forecasting a drop in oats. In the department's January supply and demand estimates, it cut oat production by almost 31% at 3.6 million tonnes when compared to 2022-23. The department chopped the carryout for oats by nearly 48%. For all wheat, Agriculture Canada projected production to bump up 1.4%. It raised canola by 1.8% and soybeans 3.5%. Corn was lowered 4.8%, while durum barley and flax remained relatively steady. As for ending stocks, those for all wheat, durum, barley, canola, flax and soybeans were raised. The president of the Canadian Food Inspection Agency stepped down from her post. Siddhaka Mathani sent a letter to colleagues and industry partners informing them of her retirement. The president of CFIA supervises the entire agency, its staff and its programs, reporting to both the Minister of Health and Minister of Agriculture and Agri-Food, on issues related to plant health, animal health, food safety, and international trade. The National Farmers Union and other groups had sent a letter to Agriculture Minister Marie-Claude Bebo in October of 2022, calling for Methani to be replaced, expressing concern about communications between CFIA and CropLife Canada and drafting regulations regarding gene-edited crops. Saskatchewan has frozen Crown Land grazing rates, Farmers and ranchers who lease approximately six million acres of crown land under those leases will pay at the same rate as last year. Agriculture Minister David Merritt also said producers leasing crown grazing land will be eligible for rent reductions if they're forced to move cattle due to dry conditions during the grazing season. Merritt estimates the two programs could cost the provincial government anywhere between one million and 3.5 million dollars, depending on weather conditions in the upcoming grazing season. Rancher Keith Day was elected chair of the Saskatchewan Cattlemen's Association at its annual general meeting. Day succeeds Arnold Belicky, who served for 3 years in that post. The Western Grains Research Foundation is assisting the University of Saskatchewan Department of Soil Science in the purchase of high-tech research equipment. The foundation contributed over $800,000 for two isotope mass spectrometers. The equipment will be used to help study how carbon and nitrogen move through the soil and, and help track crop residue decomposition. Nutrients can be traced in different crop residues to see how they affect soil fertility for upcoming crops and quantify the amount of nutrients provided by the residue, which helps predict fertilizer requirements. The new science strategy of the Canadian Grain Commission is responding to the changing needs of the grain sector. Chief Commissioner Doug Chorney says the strategy integrates the science and research goals of CGC, the key issues and challenges currently facing the grain sector. Based on consultations with producer and industry, the focus will be on advances to technology, evolving end uses, climate change and extreme weather, food safety and nutrition.